Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Desi Desi podcast. This is your host Akash Pat and you're listening to the 48th episode. I'm really excited about this one because with me on the show today is Pearl Agarwal. Pearl is an emerging fund manager and she's the co-founder and managing director at Exenius Ventures, a micro VC fund that's really changing the narrative when it comes to investing with special philosophies and frameworks. I have gotten to know Pearl over the last 6 months and it's been a pleasure interacting with her at every point. Along the way I've learned the challenges that she faced as an emerging fund manager in India trying to raise a fund during the pandemic and all the way along facing the first lockdown and the second lockdown and trying to support some exciting founders that she has brought together as part of her portfolio. On today's episode we will uncover all of the learnings that she's had in her short time in venture capital. Let's head into the episode and listen to what Pearl has to share with us on all of those fronts. Welcome to the podcast Pearl it's been a while that we've been planning to do this so it's really really nice to have you on the show. Welcome and how's your day going? You know thank you Akash I know we've been speaking about this uh, so glad to be on it. Um it's going pretty well. um you know it's it's a sunday here so i've had some time to relax with family and catch up on my chores so so far so good how's everything at your end everything's going well it's a sunday morning as uh, you know we've been recording this early in the morning for me on a weekend so it's a good change of pace getting it early getting it out of the way which is uh, not happened for a while because usually most of my episodes are recorded later in the evening when it's day in india but this is the first time that it also gives me a chance to wake up early and get ready with my day i'm actually very inspired that you know you've scheduled this at 7 7:30 in the morning because my sundays don't start that early and i'm definitely not as productive as you on a sunday morning so very inspiring to see that uh maybe that's how i need to start scheduling my sundays going forward as well <laughs> yeah it's a great way to actually get your weekends uh, off the ground but you know on that note i wanted to ask you like a bunch of questions and we've been discussing this very informally offline as well we went through two different waves of the covid and during the first you were almost fundraising you're almost setting up your fund and during the second you know it's been such a big challenge to invest and speak to companies we haven't been able to get to offices we obviously don't have face to face meetings so very different from how scenario in the us played out where at least we only had the first wave or the first wave lasted a long time but for india it kind of went in two different phases so what i'm curious to find out is what was your experience as a fund manager so talk to us about your experience both from a fundraising perspective as well as what you've learned in the last 6 months or so when the second wave kind of like hit so you know um, actually we had very different experience during both the waves um the first wave actually didn't Im- impact us as much uh, we started only a few days before the second the first wave um in fact um you know we started in march of 2020 early march of 2020 and um india went under a nationwide lockdown on 22nd march so in fact if i look back um in the first wave in a way was a blessing in disguise for us i sort of you know definitely do understand that it created havoc across the world a lot of us weren't quite sure about you know what was going to be the next step for us both from uh, economy perspective as well as health and well-being perspective and it was times of uncertainty but looking back 
um, you know, from Exenius in particular's perspective, um, we actually got some time to reflect upon how we wanted to go about building Exenius. Because um, if I remember in March, um, you know, we were sort of trying to really figure out like what would be a next step? How could we get started quickly? And, you know, how could we sort of get on the road for fundraising? Um, what would be the vehicle that we would choose? And when um, India went under lockdown, it sort of gave me time to just be in my living room or room, think about what was the step that we wanted to take next? How did we want to position ourselves? And not just that, but also, you know, um, we were able to save on a lot of cost. We didn't have to have an office right away, which we couldn't afford at that time. Um, we were able to get very high quality interns to work for us. So in fact that, you know, uh, from March, April to June, July was the time where we really uh, set the foundation for uh, Exenius. And I feel like uh, being able to sort of get some additional time to think through things, uh, to reflect upon it rather than just acting upon um, and, you know, figuring out what your next step is sort of worked out really well for us. And luckily in India, when we um, actually started to fundraise very actively, because what we did is, um, you know, I had started to think about Exenius back in um, late 2018, early 2019 itself. And we'd started to have certain conversations with folks back then, uh, because I was very sure that as a first time fund manager, I'd need to sort of delve into my uh, first degree network, um, you know, close family and friends and people that I have worked with in the past to at least get that first few dollars in the bank to get started. So that sort of conversations had started back in the day itself. Um, but in terms of formal fundraise, we didn't start until June, July. Um, in fact, I mean, you know, not even formal, but even those informal conversations and really sort of telling people that, you know, we are ready and this is something we want to do and this is how we want to go about it. So in a way, those three months sort of help us set course for what uh, we wanted and how we wanted to move forward. Uh, but having said that, this, when the second wave came, you know, we were sort of um, ready to start running. Uh, we had just had a first close in March of this year and April was when everybody was full force. In fact, we had opened up the offices as well. People had started to... Um, so really, really focus on how we would want to build our deal pipeline. What are the sort of deals that we would want to underwrite? In fact, in April, we were um, looking at four or five different deals. And the team was new. Um, even though we had started to work together, um, you know, the team that we hired uh, for full-time roles was fairly new. People had just joined in February, March. We were getting to know each other. We were getting to, you know, understand how we wanted to work together. Um, and at, at that very point, um, when we had to shut down the offices, move back home, um, you know, understand how we wanted to underwrite deals virtually. And we weren't meeting founders, but even among ourselves, you know, like there are several steps that we need to take in the due diligence process. We need to make sure that certain things are taken care of and coordinate among each other. And that was becoming very difficult. Um, at the same time, even on the founder's side, you know, and there were several founders, uh, both portfolio founders as well as founders that, uh, and when I say portfolio founders, I'm sort of referring to the founders that I had uh, supported in personal capacity in the last year, as well as, you know, founders that we were speaking with at that point um, that had contracted COVID and uh, were going through a very rough patch. So um, we decided that we didn't want to necessarily underwrite any more deals 
or focus on um, deal making, but rather sort of support uh, both our portfolio founders as well as the founders we were speaking with. Um, in fact, we also tied up with a couple of teleconsultation companies to, to extend any support that we could. Um, even within the, in, within the team itself, we had a small team of 10 people and five of them had contracted COVID. Um, so, you know, the second wave sort of hit very close and hit, it hit us at a time when we were ready to um, launch. We were ready to start, start sort of, um, you know, just moving forward. So I think um, what we learned from that is uh, we need to become a little more agile. We need to become a little more resilient to um, what was happening around us. At the same time, be more supportive of each other, of, our, of, of, of the founders that we were speaking with. Um, you know, because everybody was sort of going through a hard time. Um, luckily, it looks like things have started to become normal in India. So, you know, se several learnings from these past two waves. But from Eximia's perspective, I think it was the second wave that hit us closer than, than the first one, where we were just sort of getting started. Thanks for the summary. And you bring up some really interesting points, because not only was your team affected by COVID, we also saw that a lot of portfolio companies of VC funds went through the same sort of experience as well. And I think we discussed this offline when we were chatting a couple of days ago. The bench strength really matters a lot. And unfortunately, even the later stage companies who have employees upwards of 70, 80 people in their companies ended up seeing that half their workforce ended up contracting COVID. So when this sort of a situation arises, it's very difficult for CEOs and co-founders of companies to manage all of their workflows. And it obviously takes a huge toll on the existing employees who have perhaps not contracted COVID, but are also now taking over and doing the double work, right? Have you seen this kind of like trend with your portfolio companies as well? And what kind of insights and conversations can you share with us wherein we can also try and unfold some of the things that portfolio companies have been, you know, quote unquote, suffering or going through during this very difficult period? Um, no, absolutely. Um, you know, so luckily, some of our portfolio companies um, were positively impacted by tailwinds associated with COVID. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when the second wave hit, uh, they were seeing sort of increased usage, whether it was a gaming um, company or an ed tech company, they were seeing increased usage because of uh, cancellation of physical classes or um, you know no other alternative to entertainment. But at the same time, while there was you know on the business side things had started to look better for them, um, on the on the employee side they were uh, they were struggling quite a bit. In fact, one of our uh, portfolio companies in gaming, um, you know, the, the founder called us and he was like, I'm in two minds. I don't really know how to deal with the situation. Our uh, customer acquisition is at its best. Um, you know, the traffic is pretty good. But at the same time, um, we are working with just half the workforce. And um, I, I'm not quite sure, like, how much to push. And, and even the um, employees that are coming to the office, several of them have family members that are suffering. Several of them have, you know, near and dear ones um, that are ailing for help. And um, I, I don't feel like it's the right time to sort of ask them to put in the additional hours, the extra hours to really um, deal with, you know, the business pressures that's also mounting upon us. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to deal with this. So I think um, 
you know, there were several situations where even if people hadn't really contracted COVID themselves, they at least had um, four or five people in their inner circle that had contracted COVID. And there were times where, um, you know, we were sort of seeing people in our neighborhood that um, couldn't deal with their daily chores, that had the entire family had contracted COVID. And it was necessary that we leave our work, we leave whatever's keeping us busy and reach out to them to, to provide any help that we could. Um, so you know, a lot of times, even if you know, we weren't necessarily impacted by, um, or our businesses weren't impacted by what was going on, um, you know, both us as well as our portfolio companies really had to sort of make that choice that um, you know, it was more important at that time to help people out, uh, to support each other, um, you know, to look out for humanity rather than sort of focus on business and, um, and, and make a very conscious choice of not pushing um, their employees to give in extra hours, to take more than they were able to take, uh, to deal with the increased traffic. So I think, uh, you know, we were definitely uh, from our side as well, we were trying to do our little bit to make sure that we weren't asking them for calls, we weren't asking them to provide MIS or any of the other items that they were supposed to, and rather just sort of give them a month or two to deal with whatever they, um, they were facing at that point. So it appears to me that you've had a lot of conversation with your portfolio founders and trying to help them navigate through these tough waters over the last couple of months, which is really important, especially from a VC perspective as well, just to know that they have the support of their investors, know, just to feel that they have people that they can rely on and fall back upon, especially in terms and times where it requires them to, to be resilient is very satisfying to hear. And one of the things that I wanted to touch upon here and kind of goes back to some of the points that you alluded to was the strength of the portfolio and the founders themselves. I mean, they've gone through a very difficult period right now, right? What do you think has changed for you internally with respect to the thesis? We've seen a very tricky year, year and a half, speaking from an India context. Has any of that really impacted the thinking internally in terms of, hey, maybe we're seeing tailwinds, we're seeing certain sectors kind of do really well. You did mention that gaming was one of the sectors that saw tailwinds within your portfolio. But has that really given you an opportunity to take a step back, reevaluate your investment thesis and say, perhaps there are ways that we can alter this because of the tailwinds that we've seen? Or have you still stuck to your original thesis that you set out to invest in when you first raised the fund? If for us, um... We were fortunate enough to really sort of refine our thesis and um, to build a framework, an investment framework during COVID, uh, when we already had some visibility around the tailwinds um, and, you know, what consumer behavior could potentially look like coming out of uh, COVID. So we definitely, um, you know, haven't per se altered our investment thesis or the areas of focus. Um, you know, they continue to be gaming, edtech, and fintech, and certain areas within fintech that continue to benefit from the tailwinds coming out of COVID. And we don't think that, um, you know, it's going to only be for the next year or so post-COVID, but at the areas at the sub, uh, sub-segments that we are focusing on um, have actually been impacted by altered consumer behavior during this time. I think before consumers, um, you know, let's, Take EdTech, for example, before people were starting to realize that online education was an option, but when school shut down, they really 
um, sort of um, understood the potential of online education and its importance going forward as a part of not just um, you know uh, an additional way to consume content, but in terms of enhancing learning outcomes from primary learning as well. And uh, this is a consumer behavior that we're not just going to see for the next couple years or next year, but this has really altered the way people are thinking, the way um, you know the younger generation is thinking, consuming content and learning. And we are going to see tailwinds for the next five to 10 years coming out of this in our view. So some of these that we have started to look at, we haven't just sort of, you know, while, um, while we were building a thesis, of course, we were looking at what are the immediate sort of opportunities coming out of COVID, but we took a very long-term view. We didn't just see that what would be beneficial in the next six months, but rather what would be beneficial in the next, uh, let's say, two to five years. Because we invest in very early stages. And for us, it's very important that we look at trends that are going to become more popular or that are going to become more mainstream in the next two to three years, which is where late stage capital will start to flow in in the next few years. Um, so, you know, we had the opportunity during COVID to really sort of understand what would be those profound changes that will come about. And we built our thesis around that. Having said that, um, you know, in the last one, one and a half years, we sort of not just stuck to what we had decided back then. Uh, while the larger framework has stayed the same, we stay very close to ground. Where we do a lot of primary and secondary research, uh, speak with not just founders and investors, but also with consumers on ground to really understand how they are thinking. Uh, what are the, you know, what are their pulses? How are they sort of viewing um, these particular uh, opportunities or services that they're offered and how do we see them consuming it going forward so just to give you an example um, of edtech again we did this india-wide research uh, you know where we spoke with 300 plus teachers as well as students to really understand how they were viewing education during the covid period and how much of this was going to alter their behavior going forward as well and how important and how integrated was online medium going to become after COVID and to really sort of focus on um, what would education or online learning look like post COVID. So of course, you know, while we don't think that a lot has changed, we continue to sort of do these exercises to really refine uh, where we want to invest and, and sort of figure out the white spaces. Good to see that, um, you know, you guys have kept a an eye out in terms of what's happening and trying to be opportunistic when it comes to these investment and investment trends. Uh, I want to park the bus on this for a minute. I want to come back to this at a later stage, but I think it's a good point in the episode where it would be very beneficial for all of our listeners to understand your journey into venture capital and understand what really led you to this point. You've had a very interesting background, spending time in the United States, working here in, in private equity and investment banking and then getting a chance now to run your own fund. So take us to that journey and uh, talk us to that tipping point. When was it that you kind of decided that, hey, you know what, I'm kind of done with life in the US, life in the West, uh, Western side of the, of the globe. It's time for me to go back home and start investing in some really exciting early stage companies. So take us to that whole journey so that our listeners can really understand how things played out for you and what were the kind of opportunities that came along the way before you ended up in venture capital? You know, I uh, definitely, my journey has been very atypical and very different from um, what at least I see a, a lot of people around me. Um, I, uh, the idea that um, 
I wanted to invest or I wanted to be part of early stage companies had really set into me at a very young age. Uh, so I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, I think I was eight when both my parents were starting their separate businesses. And, you know, because at that age, um, I didn't know anything better. I would sort of uh, observe how they were setting up their businesses, how they were operating it and try to learn as much as I could. And it was during that process where I realized that, you know, it really fascinated me, the whole entrepreneurial journey, the zero to one journey really fascinated me. And this was something that I wanted to be part of in the long run. Um, and at the same time, um, I couldn't, I wasn't quite sure at that point, how did I want to be part of that? So of course, um, you know, sort of my, my journey sort of led me to the U.S., uh, where after business school, I started to sort of work with different financial services companies. Uh, so started out with an endowment fund. It was a $40 billion endowment fund uh, where I was part of their private markets division and managing a $5 billion portfolio there. And during that time, I really sort of got exposed to the entire world of venture capitalists. Uh, we were managing a portfolio of 200 plus venture capital firms as well as private equity firms. And during my time, I would have had a chance to meet at least 50 or 60 managing partners and really understand how they were thinking about their strategy, building their portfolio, picking the right companies, as well as you know the kind of journey that they had gone through to, to be where they were. And that really inspired me. Um, I knew that this was something that excited me quite a bit. Um, you know, even though I was very young at that point and um, didn't know how I could become part of it and what, what would eventually sort of lead me to that, it, it always stayed with me. And I knew that um, somewhere down the line, I did want to sort of enter into this field and, and make an impact there. Post that, I moved to investment banking with Merrill Lynch, where I was sort of working in the M&A division and had opportunity to work across various sell-side opportunities as well as um, IPO. Um, which, which gave me a good insight into how late stage businesses as well as, you know, growth stage businesses sort of thought about capital raising um, and, and growth going forward. Opposed uh, that moved to a private equity fund in New York. It was a $70 billion private equity fund that had uh, four buyout funds as well as early stage fund. Uh, we were part of a very small team. I think globally, we might have about 100 people on the entire team with only 70 people on the investment team. And that was a very, very profound experience for me uh, because while I was primarily working on large buyout transactions where we were sort of, you know, taking, doing partial uh, take private or full take private of conglomerates listed on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, breaking them apart, taking out their cost centers, converting them into pro uh, profit centers. I was also getting an opportunity to sort of work on early stage deals that were very early on in their journey. So that entire sort of cycle was very helpful to see how companies from a very early stage sort of go about um, you know, building processes, building organizations, and uh, as well as seeing how we could turn certain things like certain operations within the company uh, and, and make it more profitable. So that entire journey was extremely helpful and really um, you know, helping me understand what was it that I enjoyed. And it was looking at company from um, a bird's eye view, really understanding how to build strategy and taking that company forward. Um, so did that in New York for a few years before um, you know, moving to London. But between my journey from New York to London, I ended up spending about a couple months in uh, Bombay because we were uh, 
looking to acquire IDFC's alternative investment arm. And during that time, I came across a few startups that you know, quite excited me and really sort of uh, planted the seed for Eximius. So I started, uh, you know, because I was there in Bombay by myself, started to meet with different startups, founders, as well as people who were um, entering into that journey to think about, to, to speak with them and, and, you know, think alongside them, how they were going about building their businesses, how they were thinking about fundraising. Um, and post a couple months at Bombay, while I moved to London, I continued to stay in touch with them uh, to see how I could help out, how I could help them out with their customer acquisition or journey going forward. Uh, in the meantime, also started to get a little more involved with angel investing and actually, um, you know, having a stake that would keep me more engaged in these companies before finally moving back to India in 2020. I think it was my time in Bombay that had really sort of decided it for me that I did want to come back. So while I did move to London to, you know, gain a little more exposure around um, how Asia, Asia Pacific and European companies were set as opposed to US companies. Um, the idea was always to eventually move back to India. It just so happened that uh, and I moved back only a month before the pandemic. Um, but uh, during my entire time in London, we sort of started to think how we would want to put together Exemius, what would be the next step there and how we would want to go about building it. So in March um, of 2020, you know, finally, after moving back from London, uh, decided right away that uh, we would want to sort of enter into the early stage investing space. And during my time of working with these founders, what I realized that, you know, while in the last decade, India had uh, come a long way in terms of uh, the startup ecosystem, where uh, if, if you sort of you know talk about startups and DC funding almost 10 years ago, it was non-existent. Uh, startups were called new companies and DC funding was just funding. So it had come a long way, but at the same time, there was still a huge white space in the early stage funding. Um, it, funding was often taking anywhere between three to six months. Founders didn't quite know what was the right path for them. And something that really baffled me was often I would see that there was one founder that had dedicated all their time to fundraising itself while they could do, you know, while they could sort of focus on building their product, scaling and growth. And this is the space where we wanted to sort of operate. Uh, moreover, um, as India was becoming more mature and we were seeing about, you know, larger seed deals of two to three million, it was inevitable that even the pre-seed and the very first check would become anywhere between 100 to 200K so that founders can spend time uh, building their product, creating an MVP, and actually going out to raise seed at, with a much stronger uh, foot so that uh, they don't have to dilute much as well as um, you know, they have something, some sort of traction to showcase to the investors before they can raise. And this is the space that we wanted to operate at. Um, you know, we knew that um, there was still um, need for uh, an agile micro VC to come in this space. Um, so, you know, we did exactly that. We set up uh, Eximius Ventures, which is a micro VC fund. Uh, we are a $10 million fund where we write checks of anywhere between $150,000 to $300,000. Um, and our focus is on three to four primary sectors like fintech, edtech, um, health tech, as well as gaming. I love that journey. And I want to break it down into two 
different categories at this point. First, I want to delve a little more deeper into somebody who spent time in the United States, had a little bit of stint in London. When you were thinking about a career in venture capital, especially in India, what did you not know about the Indian VC ecosystem? Because it's not that easy sitting outside and trying to say, I'm going to come and try and build a venture capital firm in the country without really having a foot on ground. You did mention that angel investing kind of gave you a little bit of insight into what the sector and the landscape of the of the technology ecosystem in India may look like. But talk to us about some of the things that you didn't know, which you had to learn the hard way, because there might be a lot of listeners who are also thinking about either getting into angel investing or setting up their own funds, who might take some great insights away from your experience. So it would be great from a personal perspective as well for me to learn about some of the stuff that you had to keep in mind, you had to go through, you had to perhaps even go back to the drawing board and and study before you got, you know, your whole fundraising campaign kickstarted. You know, I think for me, one of the biggest learnings and something that while I was aware of to a certain extent, uh, something that I had to learn the hard way was how close the ecosystem was. Um, I think because we are still fairly new uh, to this ecosystem, to this phenomena, um, you know, most of the VCs, most of um, the angels that have come up, have come up in the last, I would say, five to six years. Um, you know, they've all sort of broken out of uh, similar institutions or um, are part of this closed network. So I think one of the biggest learnings for me has been um, really sort of breaking into that closed ecosystem. As somebody who has moved from abroad, um, you know, while I did spend quite a bit of time in 2018, 2019, sort of meeting people, networking with people, as at the same time, sort of uh, understanding a little bit more about the ecosystem through people who had taken a similar journey where they had either moved back from the US um, to enter into the ecosystem or, um, you know, were, were part of my close network before and were part of the ecosystem as well. I think it really sort of didn't quite sink into me how close the network was until I started working here, until I started speaking with people here. And so I think this is definitely something that, you know, if somebody sort of thinking um, of moving back to India to take a similar route that I did, uh, my advice would definitely be like to uh, start networking early, start meeting people and always um, try to sort of ask for a reference from the person you're speaking with to to get connected to somebody else because um, the ecosystem is closed and you know it's important to take advantage of that that several people sort of know each other uh, but at the same time i would say that you know having a confidant having at least one or two people within the system that can support you that can be there for you that you can share your learnings with and can get advice from is also very helpful it really helps navigate uh, this very close network and i would say that this has been my um, biggest learning. Of course, um, you know, there are other learnings as well, um, such as um, how are Indian consumers thinking about things? How how do startups get built here? How are founders sort of interacting with each other? Um, and, and those are things that we have sort of learned along the way. But if I had to point out uh, one of the biggest learnings that um, took me a very long time to really sort of get my hand on, my handle on, um, would be to... Um, you know, understand how to navigate a very closed ecosystem. That's an interesting point that you bring up, a closed ecosystem. Also, most of the other Asian markets also go, it's relationship-centric. Um, sometimes it may also 
unfortunately appear as an all boys club which is very difficult to like break into which in recent times the narrative is changing a follow up here would be to find out if while you were starting out with the fundraise you were starting out with just you know feeling what the ecosystem kind of like felt like did you at any point feel that you were an outsider and didn't really feel welcome into the ecosystem or was it easy to get accustomed and get onboarded to the vc side of the business was was there a huge learning curve that you had to go through and was that embracement coming more naturally from the ecosystem or was that you had to like break your way in you had to make a lot of strides to really get uh, your foot into the into the ecosystem when you when you first started out so i would say it's a combination of both right um you know there were few folks who were very welcoming a few folks that i could connect with um you know similar like especially folks who had a similar background who had spent a couple years in the us or uk um had moved back recently maybe a few years before i did so wherever there was a connect there was a value add that i could bring on the table there was definitely um a, you know warm welcome from their side and um it felt easier to connect it felt easier to sort of break into it uh, but at the same time like any other sort of you know social circle would be or any other community would be um there were a few sort of challenges that we faced at, at the same time where it might not be very easy to break in but i would say that you know it's part of any journey where um if you sort of trying to enter into a new ecosystem there would be um a few people who would be more welcoming a few people that you can also connect with a lot better uh, because either there is a, you know you guys have had a similar journey or uh, th- there is a common connect that you can relate to um at the same time there could be a certain um uh, sort of set of people where it might not there might not be that instant connect there might not be that instant uh, sort of uh, you know value add that you can bring at the same time um but you know we sort of uh, the way we take it the way i take it at least is how can we um add more value to the ecosystem what can we do to um you know bring more value to the table both for founders as well as the investors to really make it worthwhile their time to speak with us to engage with us and you know how can eximias make this a more thriving community overall and that is where our focus primarily has been we know that you know our journey has been one and a half years long only and we have a long way to go we have a long way to continue to um you know see how we can bring in additional value adds and, and this is one area i keep emphasizing that this is one area we where we focus quite a bit um you know because it is important Uh, for any networking for any relationship i say that it's very important to sort of network with a giver's mindset which means that what can you bring to the table what can you add to the other person's life or the other person's journey um for for it, you know to make it worthwhile for them to actually engage with you and, and that's how i sort of take every single networking um event or every single uh, sort of relationship that i build that's a great point that you bring up and one thing that really stood out to me in your answer previously was also the fact that you said the indian ecosystem kind of lacked an agile vc or a micro vc fund what do you really mean by that i want to get into a little bit more on the details and talk to us and share with our listeners how exemius is, is trying to position itself as an agile fund that is able to quickly deploy capital because as you mentioned fundraising is a full time job 
founders spend most of their time fundraising and it's not the best use of their time because as investors, you also want them to go back and build their own companies, build their own workbenches, build their own products. So why is it important for founders to raise capital quickly, efficiently, and more importantly, how can VCs be more efficient? And what formula have you cracked that enables you to be a more efficient investor when it comes to just deploying capital and doing diligence quickly? You know, so before I start to answer that, I just, for uh, all the listeners here, I'd like to just explain micro VC in a really quick one sentence, because I often see that that term is not very clear um, to several people because it's a very new term, you know, not just for India, but also for the global um, ecosystem. So often I see that, you know, the way micro VCs are portrayed are that they're small, uh, they're institutions with small uh, fund size, but I don't like to sort of see that as only um, you know, sort of institutions with a small fund size or more in quantitative terms. But I would say that micro VCs also bring a very strong qualitative factor, which is often overlooked. And that is the agility of an angel um, with the heft of an institution. What I mean by that is that micro VC funds are very lean in structure. They often have HIs and family offices that don't require you to, um, you know, uh, report quite a bit of the information like an institution would. What that allows you to do is create a small and nimble team that can make decisions quickly as well as eff efficiently. By this, I don't mean that you cut short on the diligence because at the end of the day, you do have a fiduciary duty towards your LPs to make um, you know, the best decision in their favor. But at the same time, uh, be able to take decisions quickly, be able to sort of um, you know, highlight everything that you know as well as things that you don't know. So you can actually spend your time looking for things that you don't know, building your thesis quickly and being able to give an answer to the founder sooner rather than later. So they have a, they have a view on how the fundraising is going and how quickly can they finish that so that they can go back to building the product, which is very important. And this is exactly what we do at Exenius. Um, you know, just to sort of give you an example, we recently signed a deal about three days ago and the first conversation that we had had with the founder was on uh, was late May. So within a month, we didn't only complete our business diligence, but we also completed all the financial and legal diligence, as well as put paperwork together and have signed uh, all the paperwork already. So that sort of gives you, you know, that sort of shows you like how quickly can we move. Uh, and that's because we have a very efficient team. Uh, when we are not underwriting deals, we are constantly training the team to understand how do we want to go about doing diligence? What is the transaction process for us? And how, um, as well as what are the standards, right? Like what is it that we want to look for and how can we sort of reach out to the right party to get that information? Um, we also create a lot of uh, standardized templates and formats internally to avoid spending a lot of time going back and forth into creating you know, unnecessary documents or intelligence reports that don't actually feed into our decision making. So we try to standardize the process as, as much as possible. And we work with the founders to make sure that we can we only ask for things that actually help us in decision making. Um, in addition to that, we also make sure that we work with a set of third party vendors and third party you know, legal firms that understand our process and then know how quickly we want to move so that they can help us in actually meeting the 
timeline that we have set for ourselves. Um, in fact, you know, our team, uh, the way we do it is we don't have just one person that works on a deal. The minute that we know there's a deal that we are serious about that we want to move forward with, we often get all the hands that we can on that particular transaction so that we can move fast, we can finish it, and then we can move on to something else. Um, and this, I feel, is a huge value add for the founders, where we're not necessarily compromising on the diligence or we're not necessarily compromising on how we are looking at a company uh, for the benefit of our LPs, but at the same time are able to give a quick and efficient decision, not just efficient decision, but also quick capital to the founders so they can actually spend their time in something that is you know, important for them, which is building the product, getting customer validation, and scaling as soon as they can. Now, one of the flip sides to that argument would be, are you overseeing certain things that you perhaps uh, might not have if you took your time to make an investment decision, which again goes back to like how the fund is structured and goes back to how strong the thesis is and how strong the process internally is, which also takes a lot of time, right? With time comes experience because with experience, then you'll be able to like identify certain metrics, you'll be able to identify certain things that you perhaps look for that kind of give you an indication that this is perhaps an investment that you want to make or maybe not. So from a process perspective, you did spend a little bit of time saying, we only ask for information that is relevant for us to make decisions. Could you elaborate on what those, what that process looks like and what are some of the things that you end up asking for your founders so that one, you know, the listeners can really get a a little more deeper understanding of how we see funds really work. And more importantly, when there are founders listening to this episode, I want them to like really take away the different narrative that's being built out by emerging fund managers in the country that really sets them apart and why the process is being more efficient, not just quicker. So, you know, I think this would like what we really ask for would uh, depend on each company that we are looking at. Um, so it, it sort of differs from company to company and their unique circumstances. But let me just take an example of a fintech company that we recently looked at. I won't be able to delve much into it because um, you know, of confidentiality issues. But at the same time, I'll give you um, an idea of the kind of deep work that we did um, while sort of making sure that you know, we were still able to give them an answer within three weeks. So we looked at a fintech company there, um, you know, where we had never invested before. We didn't really have a thesis. Um, by the way, you know, before I sort of get into, we didn't have a thesis. Let me explain what I mean by that. So every time there's a team uh, that is not working on a transaction, um, they are working on a thesis. The way we sort of go about it is the areas where we are interested, we build larger thesis around what, you know, what is our view of that particular sector? What are the subsectors within that that excites us? As well as spend time with founders and investors, and I meant, as I mentioned, users, within those subsectors to really understand what are the white spaces. So we really sort of, you know, drill down all the way down to particular, I would say a micro sector to understand whether this is a micro sector that we, like our point of view on that particular micro sector. And we call that micro thesis. So the team is constantly working on micro thesis um, to understand what are the areas that excites us, as well as they are spending time speaking with founders within that micro thesis to, uh, to you know, strengthen our view of it. So the minute something comes which fits that micro thesis, we are able to take a decision very quickly. 
because we have done our ground work we have speak, spoken to multiple people within that um you know i would say like within that micro sector to really understand what we think about it at the same time um we have ics every week so if we don't have a live deal that we are discussing with ic we are discussing these micro thesis with ic and what that helps us we call them workshops what that helps us is uh, when we bring something to ic within this micro thesis they are already apprised of it so it also doesn't take them a lot of time to really understand you know why we feel positively about a particular deal and why we want to move forward having said that um you know every now and then we do sort of come across um a, a company that we feel very strongly about that we think is positioned really well but might not be looked at as a part of a micro thesis that we might have done in the past but even then um we sort of don't cut short on the diligence that we do so for this particular fintech company um you know we had um of course we sort of had several conversations with the founders to really understand how they were going about building it what was the tech that was involved why they had really you know sort of uh, why they had picked that particular tech structure or architecture as opposed to any anything else how they were disrupting that particular space and how they were different from some of the competitors but outside of that we also looked at 50 plus competitors who could be direct or indirect competitors in that space because we wanted to understand that is their unique proposition really as unique as they were talking about so we in fact the entire team of three people three investment team members spent two weeks looking going through uh, any public data that was available and any company that could even closely be associated with this particular company to really understand what was the unique proposition in addition to that wherever we thought that there could be an overlap we also picked up the phone and spoke to those founders to build our thesis so that is just to sort of give you an example of you know the kind of work we do as well as the time that we take to do it which is only within 2 weeks so end to end despite of doing all of this work where we were doing a lot of ground research we were speaking with founders as well as doing secondary research we were able to complete the entire thing in 3 weeks so i think um you know what i would say that the way we approach is that we don't want to necessarily not be 100% convinced that this is the company we want to invest in or this is the company where you know no matter how the journey is from here on we feel absolutely good about it the day we sign the deal but at the same time we don't want to necessarily hold up the founders uh, because it is taking us a little longer to build our conviction so just being able to sort of marry both of this has taken us in the last year or so um, but you know i think um, we have sort of uh, been able to achieve quite a bit of uh, Uh, we've done really well in sort of moving forward in that direction um of course we'll continue to see where are the areas where we can cut down time further because we feel very strongly that you know in the early stages founders should not spend more than a month or two raising funds it is detrimental to their growth and time to market is of paramount importance in the early stages and they should really focus on figuring out how can they reach the market as quickly as possible even if the product is not 100% ready and get those first few customers to really try it out before they can spend any more capital and time and because we feel so strongly about it we do everything at you know at our end to make sure that that happens
I love that. I love that you have also spent some time speaking to founders and understanding the the concerns and the pain points that they go through during the whole fundraising process and then gone back to the drawing board to cut out processes to make it more efficient along the way. And this is very important for founders because a couple of weeks ago, I ran um, a clubhouse room where we really talked about what is broken within the Indian VC ecosystem. And we got a lot of founders to come and talk about some horror stories with respect to fundraise. And a, and a bunch of them really pointed out to the fact that the fundraising process just takes so much time, unfortunately, on their end. And it doesn't really give them any clarity because there's also no tr uh, transparency within the ecosystem when it comes to uh, the process, how long it takes, why is it taking beyond the certain amount of time that it was supposed to take or that they were told that it would end up being. And wasting time with unnecessary information, quote unquote, is something that founders found to be an incredible challenge as well, because for the checks that some of the VC firms were writing, you know, between the ranges of 50,000 to 250,000, the level of diligence that they were doing was that of a lead investor who was perhaps putting in 90% of the capital for the round itself. And that kind of irks a few founders, especially those who have, you know, been through this whole process a couple of times and are maybe back the second or third time themselves. So they really understand when the their time is being wasted as opposed to maybe first-time fund managers who are a little more forgiving because it's that, you know, they're, they're naive and they're new to the ecosystem in a positive way. So it really takes time. So I think it's a good process and it kind of, you're also reinstating a lot of things that founders today are resonating with is which give me more time to build my product versus stop making me spend more time doing the fundraising process. And we have everything that you need in the data room anyway, unless you need a few reference checks, you need customer calls, or you need um, any other supporting information that might really help you make a decision and not just dis like information that just something that you sit and hold on. And I think that's a very important um, process and, and change that needs to come about within the VC ecosystem to be more founder friendly. Because we always talk about being VC friendly from building companies, but it's also important for VC firms to think about how friendly they can be in terms of just helping founders raise that capital and go back to their companies so that they can start building and executing on the plans that they've been sharing with you all along. So good to see that Eximius is kind of changing the narrative on that front, Pearl. And uh, kudos and hats off to you for building that. One of the things that I also noticed um, with your fund is that outside of just capital and efficient process that you have plugged in from day one, which is which sits at the core of your fund, you also focus a lot on the portfolio support, you know, which is, of course, one of the most important things that VC funds and fund managers need to do. Uh, but you've got something that's really interesting. You've got an HR person that sits that really helps in hiring. Now we know how difficult hiring as a process in itself is and how founders spend a good chunk of their time outside of raising capital in hiring the best talent onto their team because at the end of the day, the people are what makes the company, right? I found that to be very interesting and also very new when it comes to an emerging VC fund. We've perhaps seen a few of this on the West, but not very much in the Indian ecosystem. Talk us through that whole process. Why did you end up doing that? And two, 
what kind of support do you end up in end up offering through that sort of a uh, hire internally and did you speak to founders and find out that this was a challenge and that's one of the reasons why you went about it or was this something that came up organically and you felt hey this is something that i think might be really beneficial and therefore you you went about it and it turned out to be a great decision so retrospectively how did that whole thing play out for you and if there are other insights that i perhaps might have not touched upon you can bring that out so you know before i delve into that akash um you know just sort of um making a comment on the previous point that you highlighted um one of the most important things about being founder friendly is actually giving founders a voice uh, to raise concerns to talk about how they were feeling which i have seen that you do a tremendous job of that i've been following all the work that you do for the last few months and you know you do an incredible job of just making sure that founders have a voice they can uh, express concerns so you know um want, wanted to thank you for that because i think that's very helpful for even folks like ourselves who are listening to you are listening to your um you know the the uh, sort of events that you organize to really understand how founders are viewing uh the vcs and and what sort of change they would like you know the way we sort of went about uh thinking of portfolio management uh, was at a very sort of first principle basis right like uh when i had spoken to founders like we never sort of spoke to founders typically trying to understand what is it that they would want help with but at the same time you know just sort of having casual chats with them to understand what was it that they appreciated in their previous relationships with vcs and um so sort of what sort of relationship were they looking to build with vcs we sort of noticed that one thing that came out very consistently was that you know not a lot of founders were appreciating um several sort of changes in the way they operated or um very sort of strategic level decisions that are often taken by their investors of course we're not saying that a lot of investors do that but you know when we were speaking with founders we sort of understood that they understand their industry really well they had taken a lot of time to speak with their consumers and we also want to bet on founders that understand their consumers at a very deep level you know to the extent where if the current product is not working they know when to pivot how to pivot and to actually solve for the use case that would resonate with the consumer base really well so we didn't necessarily want to build um you know a value add mechanism that would sort of augment that process because in our view founders are doing a very good job of that and wherever they do need help they would sort of reach out to us or the industry experts themselves where we can you know look at it on a need by need basis or on a one off basis so the next step was to really understand what was it that we could make more universal and something that would actually be a uh, would be a substantial a tangible value add for them um and you know like what really came out was that uh, founders often were doing all the hiring themselves and of course they should be doing the hiring themselves because it's very important to know who you are bringing onto their team and the kind of culture that they bring along with them because um every single team member in the early days sort of contributes to that long term culture but at the same time the discovery process and the initial screening process can be made a lot easier and we sort of experience that ourselves as well that you know discovery if discovery and um, initial screening is made easier then it becomes a lot easier for founders to really sort of narrow down uh, to who they would like to hire and bring them on so this is the area where we wanted to help 
um, you know, we didn't want them to necessarily spend weeks and months uh, going out there advertising the position on every single forum that they could, trying to sort of gather 100, 200 resumes, and then figuring out, you know, who are the ones that we want to go after. So we wanted to make, we wanted to sort of, you know, reduce that time to again one week or so, where we can give them a certain set of um, individuals that could fit that criteria as per the JD, and then ask them to take it from there. And we think that this could, again, you know, coming back to my point where we uh, believe very strongly that founders should sort of focus on building the product and scaling, um, you know, it's sort of tied to that entire thought process again, where we could cut down the time that we thought they didn't need to spend by bringing on an, a dedicated HR manager who would help them out, as well as give them, um, you know, the decision-making power to them where they could really decide who they finally wanted to bring onto the table. In addition to that, you know, when we were doing diligence on a lot of companies, what we realized is that founders often don't understand labor laws, labor compliances that well, because that's not a forte of theirs, and they don't want to spend a lot of time on it as well. So that was another area where we thought that, you know, it could be something where we could help out through the same HR manager and help them out in their next fundraising. Because this is, again, certain things that every single VC is looking for when they do legal diligence or financial diligence. And often um, not having that could add another few weeks to their fundraising in the sense that they would have to finish their condition precedent or subsequent, uh, come up, uh, like make sure that they're complying with these laws so that they are actually able to get capital into the bank account. And if we could just educate them on that and handle that little piece on their behalf, we'd be able to save them a lot of hassle and potentially you know, penalties as well. And so this was an entire area where we thought that with in a very low touch format, without really you know, pushing our decision on them or influencing uh, their decisions too much, we were able to add substantial value, which was something that we were very keen to do is uh, we don't want to necessarily influence the decision, but continue to be that supportive peer that they can reach out to every time they want to speak or every time um, you know, they need that additional hand to really take them forward. Similarly, we don't, like even though we have an HR manager who's dedicated, we also work with an in-house CACS to help out with compliances to just make sure that um, you know, the companies, the portfolio companies are filing their GST, their TDS and all of these things on time, uh, making sure that they're meeting all the compliances so that uh, they don't end up incurring any economic penalties or um, getting stuck in the future. Moreover, in addition to that, the idea is that you know, we would also want to bring in a community person, um, which, is, which we are very close to doing, who would help us build micro communities of sales folk, product folks, um, advisors, industry experts that our portfolio companies can quickly reach out to and get what they require. Um, you know, where uh, they don't have to necessarily sort of reach out to several folks outside of the community, but could quickly go through the profiles, the bios of the, the people who are involved in our community and know how they could benefit their journey, their growth, and get in immediate touch through our, our community manager. So these are primary three areas where we are looking to add value, where we think that, you know, these could be very helpful to the founder in taking them to the next level. But at the same time, um, you know, we are sort of taking a very pure um, in it with them kind of an approach for this. How's it really worked out in terms of your portfolio founders, Pearl? I want to understand the conversations that you've had with them 
post providing support like this what kind of feedback are they giving you because the kind of feedback that they give you are also then going to help you have a much more robust and efficient process when it comes to hiring when it comes to building communities when it comes to helping them position themselves better for future fundraisers and to potential customers so when you are building out this platform internally how important is it for you to have your founders support you as much as you end up supporting them um 100% right because ultimately this is for their benefit in fact uh, we exist to help them achieve uh, what they want to and take them to the next level so it's do very important it? is it evident at the outset to them or do, do they do you have to go through an education with them because i've had conversation with a few founders where when we talk about the value add uh, not from a fund perspective but more from an angel perspective fund perspective it's kind of evident but when i talk about from an angel perspective when i talk about the value add that i bring to the table sometimes some founders are not really thinking about from that perspective they're just saying i want the money i want to go out and build it i know how to do it i think i have a team that is efficient enough to like do the hiring build communities so how important is it for you to educate them and how often do you have to educate them and more importantly what kind of mindset should the founders be in because if the founders are not on board with you then it becomes very difficult for you to no matter what stack you end up building internally that they that they can leverage from a portfolio support perspective if they don't have that kind of mindset no amount of stack that you end up having will benefit them so do you also have to align yourself with founders on a fund perspective on a thesis perspective and second from can i work with this kind of person with this kind of support or do they get it so i'm trying to like really play around with the the constellations here and really try to make sense of what does it look like as per the fund manager when she's talking to founders do they get the support what kind of feedback thing can they give you and how can you go about building this in the future as well you know i think uh, that that's a very interesting and a very good question because of course from our end we do sort of you know think the best um that we can do and create certain portfolio management stack um to make sure that we are adding value where it's helpful but at the same time it is important to sort of have the um founders on the same page and that is a difficult task right like every single founder has their own journey they have their own sort of set of strengths and weaknesses and they have a vision of how they want to go about building the company as well and um you know often um it's sort of not as easy and it's not a cookie cutter approach to just present all of these three or four different things to them and say like you know these are the buffet of services that we offer uh, what would you like to pick and um you know if you'd like to pick one or all of them so i think that sort of approach um at least so far hasn't worked for us and i don't think that it's uh, reasonable to sort of you know expect from our perspective that uh, founders would immediately understand the buffet of services that we that we offer and uh, avail it at the same time so i think the approach that we have taken is that we want to have these um opportunities to be able to help our founders um in areas where we think that they require and where we can actually add maximum value but at the same time 
sort of wait for the founders to really um, so understand where they require help before we start to offer them. So of course, you know, in our conversations, we do tell them where we can add value. What are the things that are available um, as as part of Exenius? But at the same time, these are not just the value add that we bring. Um, just to give you another example, the entire team. Um, there was another sort of investment that we have recently made, where the entire team spent their weekend looking into every single competitor again. Uh, and this is not looking into just uh, the competitors uh, of uh, you know online or secondary research, but actually spending an hour or two on their platform to understand the services that these competitors were offering, what were the features that were offered, and uh, to uh, you know try out their services to highlight for this particular portfolio companies what are the what are the services that the competitors are offering, what are the advantages disadvantages of these services. And summarize it to them so that they can understand how they could position themselves to uh, bring th their unique value add out. So, you know, the purpose of this example is to tell you that, of course, we do sort of have certain cookie cutter uh, portfolio management uh, services, but at the same time, we actually work with the founders to understand. Um, what is their immediate requirement, where we can add value, whether it is doing market research on their behalf, helping them create strategy or doing some work, you know, where we um, have more manpower that can spend a lot of time with competitors to help them understand what are the features that are working out from customer's perspective and what are the features that are not working out from customer's perspective. Um, in addition to that, you know, we also do things such as going down and actually writing their uh their marketing uh, plan as well as their, uh, you know, if it sort of is a press release, like sitting down and actually writing their press release out for them, which I have done myself. Um, you know, it's not even outsourced where we sit with the founders and understand what is it that they want to communicate and actually sit down and write it down for them so that uh, they can get the maximum impact, the maximum reach. So we actually work with the founders where they require most help. Um, and when they require it, rather than sort of, um, you know, if they're not looking for an immediate hire, or if they think that they have enough people in their network to be able to hire out of that, then we don't want them to spend any time on HR. Um, but if they think that it's marketing where they require help, then we'll sort of, you know, adapt the team, adapt um, who we have to fit that need. And luckily today in our investment team, we also have a great mix of operators and investors that have been ex-founders before, that have uh, handled business development for large funded companies by large uh, VCs, as well as, you know, have been investors before. And so overall, um, you know, we've sort of, um, as a team, we've had different experiences and different roles, which helps us uh, add value in other directions as well. I love that, Pearl. I love the fact that you've actually thought this out. You've given a lot of time to your portfolio founders to digest the information as well and really work closely with them in terms of building this platform out because it is so important for emerging fund managers like yourself to clearly set what your value add is beyond just capital because the ecosystem's got so competitive. You and I discussed this previously as well. There are bigger fishes who used to play in bigger ponds who are now operating in the smaller ponds as well. So it becomes even more difficult for young fund managers to position themselves as funds that can add a lot of value and support to founders at the early stage. 
So I'm really excited to see how this really pans out. And before I let you go, I would love for you to share with our listeners or, or some of the founders who may be listening to us right now about certain things that you have observed from a fundraising perspective as well. Like in the last year and a half of you speaking to founders and even in the past when you have spoken to founders, what are certain things that you expect them to bring to the table in your first conversation so that they can maximize their time during that meeting? Because again, one of the things I've learned by hosting these clubhouse rooms and speaking to founders from an angel perspective is that some of them are very unprepared. Some of them have spoken to VCs for the very first time. Some of them are still trying to figure out what is the secret formula here because what works for a conversation with me might not work for a conversation with you. But now that they're getting to know you, they're getting to know Eximius, I would love for you to share with them certain things that they can bring to the table next time they have a conversation with you. So take it away and let them know what are those things because you did mention previously as well, there are certain things that you look for in their fundraising process during the diligence process on your end, but would be great if you could share with them certain things that really need to stand out during that first meeting so that they can pique your interest. Yeah. Uh, you know, for us, the stage that we invest at, it's very important to be founder first. And that's what we look at. We, and this is something that I say, uh, you know, several times, both um, to the team internally, as well as members that I speak with externally, that the only thing that will stay the same from here on is the founding team, in particular, the founders. So whether it is the first conversation or the last conversation that we have before fundraising, like before putting in the capital, one thing that we look for um, is how the founding team works together. Um, you know, what are their technical expertise? What are the soft skills that they bring? Uh, what is the chemistry between them? Um, you know, are they people who have spent a lot of time in the past, understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and are willing to complement that? Um, how are they thinking about the problem statement? How close are they to the customers? Do they understand their customers well enough that even if this particular product or this particular version is not working out too well, they can pivot quickly, they can take that decision and they can start to build it in a different direction that could solve the use case in a more efficient manner. Uh, because, you know, at the same time, um, like when we like while we're looking for some MVP and early traction, we know that this product might not look the same one year or two year down the line. There will be pivots, there will be changes, there will be modifications. But it's important to understand your users and who you're building for really well. Probably having you know also lived through that problem statement on your own to really be able to build for that uh, for that um, audience. And these are certain things like subjective things that we look for during each call. One thing uh, which I have found very helpful when founders do that, of course, you know, you might not want to share all the data uh, with us over an email, but I would say that share as much objective data as you can over an email or, you know, over um, your investor updates and really spend that one hour, one and a half hour going through the subjective aspects of why you are a best fit to build this particular product. Because if it is how many members you have, what their qualifications are, or you know the traction, we can look at it. Uh, and, and the numbers will say the same thing, whether it's written on a paper or it's spoken by a person. But is the journey, the story, and 
you know, the, the closeness to the product and the problem statement, that needs to really be reflected through the conversation that we have. I love that. And that's a great note to end the episode on. You've been extremely generous with your thoughts and insights. I'm very excited about the journey that you've set out on. And I am really looking forward to the portfolio that Eximius builds over the coming years. Thank you so much for your time, Pearl. It was a pleasure having you on the episode. Thank you, Akash. Um, pleasure speaking with you as well. Wasn't that an amazing episode? I love it when all of my guests come prepared and are willing to share a lot of information and insights about their experience in venture capital. And Pearl is no different. She may be new to the VC ecosystem in India, but goes to show the amount of work that she's put in in a short period to really build great credibility for herself and more importantly, attract and support some amazing founders who are on a quest to build great products for India and the globe. Thank you so much for being on the episode again, Pearl. We had a ball hosting you. And if you are like me and you enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast because it really helps others discover the show and more importantly, gives you a notification every time we drop a new episode on the podcast. I want to end this week's episode on a quote that I came across by Ankur Variku, the ex-nearby founder who also happened to be episode number 25. And this quote really talks about how we hire a bunch of smart and driven individuals at nearby and wanted to create a culture of 100% autonomy but really struggled to do so. And he quickly realized that autonomy isn't about letting people decide what needs to be done. It's about sharing what needs to be done and then giving them the freedom to decide how it could be done. And 99% of the people want to be led, not managed. I thought that was a fantastic quote and it's something I resonated with and I'm very confident that a lot of founders and otherwise who are listening to this episode may also connect with that on some level. And on that note, I'd like to conclude this episode. Thank you all for staying all the way towards the end and see you again next week.